Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. Over the last 20 or so years, GMO traits have made life undeniably easier for farmers. From additional weed control tools to insect resistance and end-market value-added traits, GMO traits are a big part of the national average yield increases that we've seen over the last few decades. But as useful as these tools are, there are a lot of myths that come with them. In today's episode, we're going to talk about tackling a few of these myths to, to really get out into the open what's actually occurring with these traits and you know what's what's not. So to start out, one of the, the most recent questions that I've been getting more so than any others, uh, and I get a lot of these questions because I have a background working with transgenes and GMO traits. Back when I was in grad school, I made a lot of transgenes for fruit flies. So I get a lot of questions all throughout our footprint and from a lot of customers too. And there's a lot of marketing going on right now about some of the most recent traits to have hit the market. It's saying that, hey, these are molecular stacks, and so they're better than those old breeding stacks that you're using or this other competitive breeding stack out there. So first of all, I want to call out the status of that assertion and that that's partially true, but actually not totally true. So first, let's break that down a little bit because what we have are, are we have breeding stacks and molecular stacks. So breeding stack is where two or more transgenic traits are located in different parts of the genome of the plant, and then they are stacked together through breeding, where you select the progeny or the descendants that each have uh, that each of those traits of interest. And so, what that is in, in genetic terms is independent segregation of those different traits. Now, a molecular stack, on the other hand, is where those transgenic traits are designed and inserted as part of the same event. If you can see my hands, I'm making quotation marks. Event, and are thus located in the same spot in the genome, so they're right next to each other. So these transgenes are called the linked together. So they're linked so tightly that recombination, so when you reshuffle the genome, recombination between the transgenes almost never happens. They're inherited in the progeny as one specific unit. So molecular stacks are really only superior to breeding stacks in that they're easier to work with in the trade regression phase of product development. So as you're making new inbreds or new varieties and you're doing back crosses to try to get the genetic background that you're after, it's a lot easier when you only have to worry about one unit that's segregating together as opposed to uh, a couple different things where you have to uh, you know, independently track them and, and use a wider pool of, of progeny just to find the ones you want. Yes, it makes it easier to work with, but ultimately for the farmer, the farmer will see no difference whatsoever in a well-designed trait regression practice between a breeding stack and a molecular stack. What they'll effectively just see is the genetic potential of the resulting products, whether it's a hybrid or a variety that comes from those stacks. So another set of questions that I get, and, and it's actually more of a comment that I get, is, is a lot of people believe that conventional hybrids are more digestible than their traded counterparts. And so first and foremost, the status of this myth is, is totally false. So that, that actually do, does not hold true. The traits themselves generally do not impact the digestibility of any of the uh, hybrids that they're in. Now, the observations that, that lead to these assertions are actually from data that, that are uh, based on comparisons between a conventional hybrid and a traded hybrid. However, that conventional hybrid is from a different genetic chassis than the traded hybrid, hybrid is. And so the 
differences that we see are more due to genetic differences rather than trait-mediated differences. You know, what's an example of that you, you might think about? So what is a genetic chassis? You know, a genetic chassis is a single hybrid. So for example, we have a hybrid that we call RC6401. It's an extremely high-quality dairy silage product. It also works really well for grain, but it's a dairy-quality silage product. And if we were to put out the conventional version of RC6401 and our fully traded version being a 5122, so a Duracade traded version of the product, you will not be able to statistically distinguish the two products from a silage quality standpoint. If you had them in two different piles and measure the quality of each, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two. It's, it's entirely based on the genetic potential of those products. I've gotten a lot of questions ever since I started back in the seed industry, you know, where, where the comment is traits increase yield. So my traded products should out yield my conventional products. And the general status of that is, is actually primarily false, but that could change in the future. You never know what new traits are going to come out as, you know, they, uh, traits could end up resulting in increased yield potential, but what traits actually do is they preserve yield. So the yield of a particular hybrid or variety is determined by the interaction of the genetics of that hybrid or variety with the environment. So genetic potential is what we're talking about here. That, that is what, that's where the yield comes from. Now, the traits preserve the yield, but they don't increase it. And this works through, for example, let's say herbicide tolerance. If you have a hybrid that is tolerant to a specific herbicide, it gives the farmer the ability to combat weeds that would compete for resources with the crop. So if you're unable to, to control those weeds, you'll end up out competing the crop and decreasing the yield because those weeds will steal sunlight, they'll steal moisture, they'll steal nutrients, nitrogen, whatever it may be. And by combating those weeds, you, you preserve the yield potential of that crop. On the other hand, there are insect resistance traits which minimize the damage from insects, such as corn borer, corn rootworm, earworm, black cutworm, whatever it might be. And they result, through the result of these traits, they minimize the amount of damage that these insects cause, resulting in a healthier plant, better standability, less physical damage. So you preserve the yield potential of that field through better standability, better resource uptake, less wounds in the plant to decrease sunlight absorption or increase uptake of disease, whatever it might be. So the fourth myth that I hear about all the time, and, and is actually as, as prevalent as anything, and it comes with any new launch of any new trait or trait stack, is that traits have yield drag. This is probably the most complex answer out of all of these in terms of, of how do you talk about yield drag, what is yield drag, whatever it might be. But, but first and foremost, this is mostly false. Yield drag, as you think about it, is technically defined as a reduction in yield potential for a given product, whether it's a hybrid or variety, due to the trait being there. And that's, that's generally inferred by the trait itself is causing a reduction in yield potential, where in reality, there are a couple of things that, that have contributed to this myth that um, make it mostly false, but not entirely false. So let's break it down into its factors. First of all, there's genetic potential. There is back crossing or recovery of the recurrent parent during trait integration. And then finally, there is trait load and cellular function. Those are the three big pieces that we'll talk about as we debunk this myth. So first of all, 
let's consider genetic potential. And genetic potential is the primary determinant of hybrid or varietal performance. It's often, but not always, new trait launches aim to deliver a broad portfolio, but won't necessarily have as many years of breeding to back up that portfolio as you would have with the mature trait that's been in the industry for a number of years. And so, you know, with that, that depth in the portfolio, you may lack some of the offensive and defensive products that, that would normally be present to make up a whole portfolio. And so this is mostly prevalent in the soybean trait market because with soybean traits, you typically have a new herbicide platform that a farmer wants to use across his whole farm, not just a given field or another. So adopting the entirety of the trait forces that farmer to try out multiple different products they w- that they wouldn't normally do otherwise. So if we think back to the Roundup Ready 2 or the Extend launch in soybeans, these launches were uh, viewed both viewed in some way as having some yield drag, that these traits had some yield de- drag. But what actually happened is that the portfolio wasn't quite deep enough yet to provide that full portfolio worth of products with offensive and defensive traits. So it said that they had yield drag compared to the prior generation of traits before them. And so it's really more of a, a reflection of the lack of genetic potential or depth. Now, secondly, let's look at the quality of trait integration. And so this is complex because as you think about it, if you have a hybrid, if you have an inbred that makes a hybrid and you want to get a trait into it, that trait has to come from somewhere. So you have to cross that inbred to another inbred that has the trait. Then you have to back cross it to the original inbred, back cross it, back cross it, back cross it. And what your goal is, is to recover 95 to 98% or more of the original parent, so the recurrent parent, by back crossing that trait into a particular inbred or variety. Now, because you're only able to recover 95 to 98 to 98 and a half percent of the original parent, there are going to be scenarios where you might miss some high value genes. So let's consider a scenario where an inbred contains a version of a gene that confers high resistance to anthracnose stock rot, such as the RCG1 allele. So if that allele doesn't make it into the final backcrossed version of the inbred, so if it falls outside of that 95 plus percent recovery, then the resulting hybrid from that inbred will be more susceptible to anthracnose stock rot and may ultimately result in lower than expected yields. So what that does is it gives you a slight difference between the conventional version and the traded version of a product. And with today's molecular markers and sequencing, that this is much lesser of a problem than it was back with the first generation of traits and the back crosses. But it's still a problem that we, we keep our eyes out for and a lot of companies including ours, will just avoid advancing products that don't have the same characteristics as their conventional version. Finally, some transgenic traits can have a negative impact on the plant itself. This is really, really rare with new transgenes that are in the marketplace today, and it isn't necessarily present in all genetic backgrounds. So let's consider the fact that for a corn rootworm trait, in order for it to work and be effective against controlling corn rootworm, the plant needs to make lots and lots of the new protein in its roots. And so if the plant overproduces that protein, the plant will be consuming additional energy by trying to make that protein, you know, using its factory within the roots to try to produce that protein, and it won't have as much energy to devote to other things. But actually, more importantly, that excess protein, if there's too much of it made, 
the cells in the plant have a hard time managing that. And so what actually happens is they end up, those proteins aggregate together and they'll form little plaques and congregations of protein that really impede cellular function. So those cells aren't able to do what they're supposed to do to feed into the roots, transpire water across their membranes, whatever it might be. And thus, while it may be really effective in controlling your corner rootworm, it may actually reduce the yield potential of the plant. And so with the most modern versions of a lot of these traits, a lot of fine-tuning is done in order to uh, get the right amount of transgene expression to maximize the efficacy but avoid those deleterious effects. It is really challenging to do, but with today's biotechnology and molecular insights, it makes it much, much easier when designing new GMOs as, as compared to with the 1980s and 1990s when the first generations were, were created. So let's recap for a moment. You know, we, there are lots and lots of myths regarding GMOs in corn, soybeans, and other crops, and we just wanted to debunk a couple of those today in today's episode. So first of all, we talked about molecular stacks versus breeding stacks. In a farmer's eyes, there should be no difference between molecular stacks and breeding stacks. While, bre- while molecular stacks may have a slight advantage from a product development standpoint, as long as the final end product has the genetic potential required, then the farmer shouldn't care whether it's a breeding stack or molecular stack. Next was the conventional hybrids are more uh, digestible than traded products. This is entirely false because most of those studies were done without comparing an isogenic line, so the same hybrid with and without traits. The same hybrid with and without traits, if it's a high-quality, high-digestible product, then it will be high-quality and highly digestible without traits as well. The third myth that we addressed was that traits increase yield. While that's currently false, that could change in the future, traits don't necessarily increase yield, but they do preserve it. And finally, we dispelled the myth that traits have yield drag. While this is mostly false, the majority of what what causes this myth to be prevalent among the industry is that you know, initial launches of new platforms and new traits generally doesn't have the portfolio depth that, that well-established traits will have. Backcrossing and recovery of the, your current parent is extremely important, and in new launches, it's, it's harder to get back to that your current parent because you don't have as much time with the trait to deal with. In some rare instances, trait load can impact cellular function. You get aggregations of protein and overexpression of those uh, proteins that can result in a little bit lower yield, but that's rare in today's newest generation of products. Based on debunking these myths, a farmer really shouldn't fear using traits. I mean, if as long as you're using high-quality products from reputable suppliers, using traits is a great thing to help protect you on your farm and give you additional tools you need to increase your yield. You know, really what you should ultimately be looking for is the best product fit for your farm. So not necessarily looking at, at you know the newest traits, the latest traits, whatever it might be, but what is the best variety or the best hybrid for your farm. And ultimately, that'll make you a lot more money than, than worrying about whether a trait ha- might have yield drag or not. If, it's pr- if a product is commercialized, then it's gone through the rigorous testing required in order to get it out and onto your farm. So, as always, be sure to tune in on the 1st and 15th of every month. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready. A Huda Media Production.